Um, and over the last couple of years, as we've gotten to know them better and build a relationship with them, one of the things that they've talked about quite a bit is how uh, the teams that particularly serve students in Latin America like to get together. Uh, they've been trying to do this once a year. COVID, of course, made it more complicated. But try to get together once a year just to be together, to build relationship between those teams, to learn from each other as they have similar context and challenges, and then also just sort of the bonding uh, that they have because of the language and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they've been doing this a, a few times. And as we've been talking with them, have said, hey, we do this thing called Latin Scope, where we get our teams together. And it's, it's uh, one of our favorite things, maybe the highlight of our year in a lot of ways. But one of the challenges is that whoever is hosting this thing has to do a lot of work. And, and so they don't get to fully participate in the experience because... You know, they're, you know, making lunch or trying to figure out um, how to plug the sound system in or, or, or are working on talks and all that kind of thing. So they said, hey, do you have people that speak Spanish? Do you have people who can lead worship? Do you have people who could teach? Do you have people who just want to come and serve and help make this thing possible? And we were like, yes, we have all those things. So we've been working on this for, for several months now, and we're finally able to, to send the team to be a part of that experience again a couple of weeks ago. And um, it, it was... Uh, it, it was beautiful just for me personally knowing each of those teams and some of the things that they have gone through over the last couple of years to know that our community was a part of serving and blessing them and creating a space uh, for the staff of those teams to just be together. And, and again, not have to carry the burden of all the logistics and all the the talks and all that kind of stuff to just be together. Um, and then the other part of it that was beautiful is was just, you know, the stories that have come out of that. And in particular, I've heard now from a, a few uh, of the staff who are working on the ground and then also from Phil Tatum, who's the director of all of Global Scope, who said, there is, you know, they're connected to many churches around the world. No church has ever loved their teams in this way. Right? Being there, being present, being intentional, incarnational, um, investing in them in this sort of way. That's, that's the thing that I keep hearing from different folks is no church has loved us in quite this way before. And again, knowing some of those teams and some of the, the relationships that they do have, I think it's just a really beautiful picture of, uh, of the church, what the church should be doing. Uh, probably more often, and I think it's been helpful and even redeeming of, of the church for many of the people who are serving on those teams, uh, again, in the, in the Latin context. So uh, the folks who went on the team, do you guys mind, those of you who are here, I know not everybody's here, but if you don't mind standing up just for a second, I'm going to put you on the spot. So Antonio, Pamela, my wife Amy, Ross, uh, who's I think around taking pictures, Joshua's not here this weekend, and then a uh, good friend of, you can sit down now, it's fine. <laughs> good friend of Discovery, uh, Francisco, was also a part of this team. Um, ask him, uh, how was it? What did you see? What did you learn? God move. What, what was your experience like? Tell me more about what, the, what is this global scope? What, what, are these, uh, what are these people doing? Because what global scope to me is doing is really leading us. I, I really feel like organizationally and even just individually, the, the people who are working for them and the teams that they are a part of, they're leading us. And, and I mean that specifically as discovery. I also mean that just kind of in general as the church. I think they're really leading us in what, as we like to call here, the new country church looks like. How do we reach people who are still interested and compelled by Jesus but have a lot of questions 
have a lot of baggage, maybe don't even have any context for what church is. They are way out in front of us leading us and what that looks like and doing it in some really beautiful ways. So all the folks who are on that team I think would have a lot of insight into that and be able to share some wonderful stories uh, with you. So feel free. I've put them on the spot. Um, Fire away. Fire your questions away and they'll tell you more about that. Um, One other thing that I want to say here before we get going, and we're going to be in Esther chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Esther chapter 4. You can find that on your phone, the Discovery app, whatever you have um, in front of you this morning. Um, That's where we're going to be here in just a moment. Before we get to that, though, I want to say this as well. The last two Sundays, we have been led in our teaching by uh, Kayla and Andrea. Kayla is one of our deacons. Yeah. And... Andrea, one of our elders, and they are the first two women to teach on a Sunday morning at Discovery. And we're not going to, like, throw ourselves a parade or whatever, but I feel like it's worth naming that and celebrating that. And also thanking them for doing a really fantastic job. So thank you guys for leading us in that way. Um, My hope is that this just becomes a more normal part of who we are. allowing people, really talented, gifted people, to share their gifts, whether they're male or female, um, and in particular to share their teaching gift here on stage on Sunday morning. So just a really cool thing, and I'm glad that they were able to do that. And it definitely helped me as I was solo parenting while Amy was in Chile. Um, So there's also a very practical part of that as well. But more significantly, again, I think that's a a big moment for us as a community and want to Want to celebrate that. All right, Esther chapter 4, as a little bit later on in 2023. I'm just going to read a couple quick verses, starting in verse 15, and then I'm going to pray and we'll get into it. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. And if you're like, who is Esther? Who is Mordecai? I will get, we'll explain all that here in just a minute, so hang tight. Esther sent her reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or I will go to the, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all that you are doing in and through discovery, that we get to be a part of this with you. God, we ask now that as we turn our attention to Scripture, to the story of Esther, to the practice of fasting, that you would hold whatever it is that we bring in with us this morning, that we might be free to just be here, uh, free to receive what it is that you want to share with us today. Would you tune us in to your voice, your spirit speaking to us? And would you give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond. We pray this today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, the, the week that our team was in Santiago, I was experiencing FOMO. Um, now, to be fair, I wasn't, it wasn't really fear. I was Missed, I was literally missing out, so it wasn't really like a fearful thing. It was more of a grieving thing. But anyway, it, it was, you know, we, this is how we talk in our culture, right? We, we say, I was FOMOing so hard, right? So I know that something awesome is going on and I'm not participating in it, but I wish that I was. Now, when we were prepping for this gathering and talking about fasting and discernment and all those sorts of things, our interns 
uh, introduced me to a new term, one that I was not aware of. This term is phobo. Okay, phobo. Fear of missing out on better options. All right, so there's fear of missing out, and then there's fear of missing out on better options. You might say it this way. FOMO is, I'm so bummed that I'm missing out on this trip to Chile. But FOBO is, hey, wait a minute. There might actually be someplace cooler than Chile. There, there might be some organization even more awesome than Global Scope. There might be some experience out there more forming than Latin Scope. Now, this is a very privileged position, right? This, this uh, so-called first world problem, having too many options to choose from. But it is an issue that many of us face. How do I choose between multiple good options? What if I make the wrong choice? What if I make a good choice, but then I find out later that there might have been something even better than that? How do I know? How do I know that I am making the right choice? choice. Again, not everyone has this privilege. Some people only have one option. There's no phobo involved because survival demands that you do what needs to be done. But for those of us with options, phobo is one of the reasons, I think, why anxiety is on the rise, why many of us struggle with making decisions and keeping commitments. I think it's why decisions that require discernment. What about this? What about this? What about this? Why they can produce Profound paralysis. And we're now going to get into the, the story of Esther. Esther's a really interesting character because in so many ways, her story is like totally unrelatable to any of us. And, and then at the same time, I actually think that there's a lot within Esther's experience that speaks to our cultural moment. So the story of Esther, let's, let's create some context here. Fascinating story. Uh, within the larger scope of Scripture, it comes from a period of time where the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, they had been conquered and, and they'd been removed from their homeland, exiled in Babylon and then Assyria. Now chronologically, and there should be a thing up here on the screen that may not be easy to see, but it'll give you a little bit of a sense of where the story falls. It's one of the last events to happen in the Old Testament. So basically it goes Esther, and then there's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and some of the exiles who get to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city. And then there's like a pause for 400 years before Jesus comes. Right? So one of the last events in the Old Testament. It's an interesting book because God never appears as a named character in this story. And it's almost like God is more present through being something like this. And to understand Esther is to recognize that the story is both understated and exaggerated at the same time. The events go like this. King Xerxes is the leader of the Assyrian Empire. He has a six-month-long party. When you celebrate how awesome he is. You know, like you do when you're the king of an empire. Six-month-long party to celebrate how awesome he is. In the middle of the revelry, it says that he was in high spirits. Which is like a nice way of saying that he'd had too much to drink. Okay? So he's in high spirits and he, he decides to invite his wife Vashti to come into the party. Now one of the subplots of the story of Esther is the incredible chauvinism of the Assyrian culture. The, this invitation is, is sanitized in our English Bibles. I'm, actually, I'm not going to even get into it because I think it's too much for us to handle this morning. 
Um, but he invites his wife to come in to show her off. This is a degrading, objectifying, and humiliating ask. And she says, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And Xerxes is ticked. So he, he gets together with his bros, and, and they say, look, dude, you got, you got to have a strong reaction to this because all the other ladies are going to get the wrong idea that they can just do whatever they want. And so he kicks her out. He says, you're not queen anymore. It doesn't really ever say what happens to Vashti. That's kind of an interesting question that goes unanswered in the story. But he kicks her out, and then they decide to hold a pageant to choose a new king. It's like a bad reality TV show pitch. Uh, this process of choosing the new king, it's also not a short process. It takes the whole year. The first six months are just like beauty treatments. And then the next six months is this competition and then finally the selection of the new queen. And it's in this competition that we meet Esther. Esther is Jewish. She's part of the exile community. She has this sort of cousin, uncle, adopted father named Mordecai, who, who's sort of taken uh, 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 care of her during the chaos of the exile. Mordecai finds out about the competition, enters Esther into it because she's beautiful, and she wins. She sort of miraculously wins and is chosen to be the queen. Now, while all of this is going on, there's another important character in the story. His name is Haman. Haman is like the, like the evil villain of the story of Esther, one of the king's henchmen. He'd been elevated to Xerxes' right-hand man, which um, he was super chill and cool about. No, he's like, I'm the right-hand man. Everybody is going to bow before me and kiss my ring. All right, and so he goes around and he makes everybody do this, except there's one person who refuses to do it, and that person is Mordecai. He's like, I'm not doing that. And so Haman gets, like, really mad about this. And, and rather than just punish Mordecai, he's like, let's wipe out all the Jews. All right, this is the understated exaggeration, right, of the story. So he writes this decree. He presents it to Xerxes. Xerxes is like, whatever, signs off on it, and they... they the ball is rolling on, on this basically genocide, right, of the Jewish people. Which brings us now to chapter 4. So at the beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai is mourning this decision. And Esther gets word that Mordecai is not doing well. And so she asks, what's, what's up, Mordecai? Why are you not doing well? She's become so sheltered in her position as queen, she has no idea what's going on. No idea uh, what Haman has been doing. No idea that her people might be wiped out. Story, because during the competition, Mordecai was like, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Right, let's keep that on the DL. But now he's like, we need you. We need you. We need you to stand up for us. Only there's, as we should know from how the story's unfolded, there are some issues with this, right? The last queen got the boot for standing up to the king. And then there's all this red tape about how you visit the king and you can only come in every 30 days. And Esther's like, well, I, I got to wait till it's the right time and all this stuff. And this brings us now to one of the most, like this is right out of a movie script, one of the most epic speeches in the entire Bible, Esther 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent this answer, do not think 
that because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. Then he says this really fascinating thing. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from somewhere. It's actually a pretty incredible statement of faith. Right? Somehow, some way, God is going to rescue us. But then this question, who knows? Who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Right? People love to quote this, especially during like leadership, get everybody pumped up sort of moments. Like, such a time as this. Uh, it's a great speech, right? And so she goes and sits with it. And this brings us back to where we started. Esther sent her reply to Mordecai, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And this great line, if I perish, I perish. Right, so it's this crazy, uh, uh, again, it's almost like a movie, the story of Esther, all these uh, unbelievable events that sort of come together to bring her to this moment. And just to fast forward to the end of the story, I mean, she does. She basically saves, uh, she basically saves her people by going to the king and advocating on their behalf. So Esther is this really interesting character because, again, she's like totally unrelatable and yet very relatable at the same time. Okay, unrelatable, she's the queen of the Assyrian Empire. None of us are ever going to be the queen of the Assyrian Empire. You know, that close to, to the center of world power. But at the same time, again, I would argue she's actually a very relatable person. Especially in our moment where we have options. Esther is an outsider. Even though she's the queen, she's an outsider. She's a woman. We see all throughout the story the ways in which just because, you know, you're the queen does not make you a powerful person, right? Exists in a very precarious position. Uh, she's an ethnic minority. She's not a part of just any ethnic minority, but one that has been targeted for genocide. She has access to all this information, but it's not always clear how she should act, what she should say, and even what she can accomplish and I think that this is where many people are, many of us are during major inflection points in our story. We have access to all sorts of information, right? We have proximity to resources, but we always have control over those resources. And then we have all of these options to sort through. And that kind of matrix of things can be very overwhelming. Now, what we see in Esther's story, what we see in so many other moments in Scripture is that when people are faced with big decisions, when they need discernment, they fast. They fast, which is uh, like a counterintuitive thing, right? Because oftentimes we're told, if you want to be at your best, like this is the, this is the all-time parental advice, right? If you want to be at your best, what do you do? Get a good night of sleep and eat a good breakfast, right? The night before a big game, big test, big play, big moment, whatever it is, get a good night of sleep and eat a big breakfast. Now, that is really good advice, by the way. And it's really good advice for the same reason that fasting is an important practice for discernment. Let me break this down for a moment. We are human beings. We are human beings. We are whole Persons, heart, soul, 
mind and body. And we need to hold those together, the totality of those aspects together. But I think we also need to accept the reality that oftentimes it's the body that leads. It's the body that leads. Now, Western anthropology, which has been, um, like this format, I think has been deeply adopted by a lot of theology, tends to see us this way. Spirit, emotions, and then the body is sort of an afterthought. Spirit, emotions, the body is sort of an afterthought. Now, this is all connected. We're, we're, we're holistic, whole beings, but it'd probably be wiser to actually flip that. Right? Body, emotion, spirit. 90%. This is a, a pastoral statistic that I have just made up. 90% of spiritual issues have a physical solution. And a, a lot of times when I'm in conversations with people, the conversation comes back to how are you sleeping? How are you eating? How are you exercising? Because the body leads. Oftentimes we, we tend to prescribe, you know, pray more. Read the Bible more as our go-to solutions. And those are super important practices. Don't get me wrong. But there is a deep connection between the physical and the spiritual. Oftentimes the solution to a spiritual issue is not more spiritual stuff, but it's something physical. Because it's all connected. It's all connected. We are heart, soul, mind, and strength. The body leads. This is why when the Old Testament prophet Elijah is depressed, God gives him some food. This is why after a very intense period of ministry, Jesus falls asleep in a boat that's in the middle of a huge storm, by the way. This is why when people throughout scripture need to make a big decision, they fast. Because that we are deeply connected human beings. Now, quick sidebar, there is some um, debate about the definition of fasting uh, with some saying, you know, biblical fast is where you just, you don't eat food. And I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. But I'm using this word in a much more broad, generous sense today because I think that there's a lot of things that can have control over us that can deeply impact our bodies and abstaining from those things can actually be quite helpful, particularly around this practice of discernment. You know, we're in a season of Lent right now. Some of us have given up, you know, all kinds of different things. Maybe it's chocolate, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's social media, whatever. Those are really great practices to disconnect ourselves from the things that can get a hold of us. Right? And, and, and can sometimes even overwhelm or overtake us. And so fasting from those things, abstaining from those things, can be deeply clarifying. There are other ways to engage in this practice. I, I want to name a couple of them very quickly here before we come in for a landing. We can fast at times as a practice of discipline. As a practice of discipline. Fasting is a way of forming our bodies and minds through deprivation. And, and there's all kinds of, of even scientific data that shows that regular fasting has great health benefits. And then again, because we are connected, right, it has, it has significant spiritual benefits 
as well. Fasting can be a form of disciplining our appetites. We can also fast as a practice of devotion, an act of sacrificial worship, an act of justice and redistribution. There's a beauty in abstaining that puts our attention on God and creates abundance for others. And I would highly encourage and challenge you, if you are thinking about diving into the practice of fasting, you need to read Isaiah 58 before you do it. Because there's some pretty strong words there about how we fast, what the purpose of fasting is. That it is not just about proving our spirituality or worthiness or whatever. That it truly is about bringing justice, wholeness, right relationship, shalom to others. Then finally, and this is where we are, are this morning. We can fast as a practice of discernment. We let the body lead. Right, as we seek God's wisdom for what to do or where to go or how to proceed in the face of a big decision. And I just want to say here, fasting is not like a magical thing of like, oh, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do, so I'm going to skip lunch on Tuesday and like the clouds will open up and, and angels will come down and they'll tell me, like they'll write on a little piece of paper like, here's what you do. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. I mean, if that happens to you, please come and tell me about it. I will, that would be a great story to hear. But for the most part, what happens when we fast, actually, and I think it's really important that when we engage in this practice, we begin small. Because what is going to happen the first couple of times that you do it is you're going to feel terrible. And you're going to be grumpy. And you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be like, I, why did I do this? I missed my coffee. Or, I, you know, breakfast sounds real good. You start having dreams about pizza or whatever the thing is that, that you really like to eat. But the more you do it, you kind of build up this muscle, you will find that fasting creates space. Fasting begins to create space. And it's in that space that we can hear, God, what do you want me to do? What are you inviting me into? What is my such a time as this moment? Now, as we um, get ready to come to the table and take communion together, we're, again, pausing our practice conversation for a while. We'll pick it back up again in the fall. Now, the way we've done this the last three years is we've sort of interspersed the practices throughout the, the year. And, you've, you know, we'll hit something, prayer or whatever, and you'll have five, six, seven weeks to kind of dig into that more. This year we've done it in one chunk, and we'll do it in another chunk um, at the end of the year. And the idea here is to, is to just sort of sit in it for a little while and then kind of leave it open-ended for you. And, and that's where we land the plan today is with this question, what are you being invited into? When it comes to the, the practices, the spiritual disciplines, and we've hit over the last couple of weeks, Sabbath and prayer and fasting, what is it that you are being invited into? What is the thing that, that you sense God is saying, hey, come try this? You, you, you need to kind of step into this. For Is it Sabbath? Is it rest? Do you need to stop? Do, do you need to explore that as a way to engage in relationship with God and to disengage from other things? Is it Sabbath? Are you being invited into a new practice of prayer? Into praying with other people? And trying something new or different when it comes to that discipline. Do you need to fast? 
Do you need to fast for discernment or devotion? Maybe it's some other thing. Maybe it's none of the practices. Maybe there's some other thing that God is inviting you into. Remember we started this conversation a couple weeks ago with that story about my kids and how it's, you know, I tell them to do something and they're like, I know. Right, and then they don't go do it and then it's like I tell them again, like, I know. And we can, you know, laugh about that or whatever, but we all do that, right? God has invited us into these things. We know what we're supposed to be doing, but we haven't taken that step to actually do it. Maybe it's some other thing. What we're inviting you to do this morning is this. You'll see there's these two stations here uh, up front. So as we close our time today in worship and as we close taking communion, I also want you to think about what is the invitation? What is the thing right now for you that God is inviting you into? And it might just be, you know, this is not going to be like write a paragraph or anything like that. Just a word or a phrase. Prayer. Fasting for discernment. Um, you know, some other thing that you sense God is doing. Just a couple words on these sticky notes. There's like a bigger piece of paper. Just write down your thing. Stick it on there. You're not signing your name to this. We're not going to check and make sure you did it. But what we hope to do is paint a little bit of a picture of like what is God inviting us into communally in this season? What is the practice? What is the, the invitation? What is the word? What is the thing that God is inviting us into in this season? We're just going to name those things and leave them there um, as a way to paint the picture collectively of what's happening. And then we're also going to take communion. So as the band comes back and gets ready to lead us in our time of response, communion is not a fast. Right? It is a feast. It's where we feast on the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the gift of right relationship with God, the gift of connection, true relationship with each other. It's where we remember and celebrate his body broken for us to redeem and heal our bodies. So when you're ready here over the next few moments, come to one of the stations, take the elements Write down your thing. Leave it on, on, on the, uh, the tables there. Let's see what God is doing, inviting us into in our community here. All right, let me pray. Father, we, over the last few weeks, we've been extended several invitations. The invitation to build our house, our lives, on you. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their, their house on rock. We've been invited to, to Sabbath, to rest, to sit in the truth that we don't have to do anything to prove ourselves to you, God, but you create space for us to rest and to be, to be known and to be loved. We've been invited into prayer, into relationship with you and with each other through this ongoing conversation about what is true and real. And then in seasons of discernment, God, we're invited to fast because the body leads, it's all connecting. And so I just pray over our community right now, whatever it is that we need to do in response to who you are and what you are doing in our lives, God, would you give us the courage to respond? Would you give us the clarity to name what it is? And again, the courage to go and do it. For his death and his resurrection 
for all that that means now and into eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.